there's this beauty that no matter how solid and severe a system seems, there will always be cracks in it that are going to let light in. Mm-hmm. And that light is what these people created their lives by. Welcome back. This is the Book on Fire podcast. I'm Janet. I'm Dave. And today we're going to talk about chapter one of Sylvia Federici's Caliban and the Witch, Women, the Body, and Primitive Accumulation. Hi folks and welcome back. It is a beautiful sunny winter day in Appalachia. It's finally cold, coldish, and we are about to take advantage of the cold by going out and getting together some firewood uh, to warm our house for next year. But first, we have chapter one to discuss. (laughs) First, we're going to talk about the feudal system. (laughs) So here we go. Uh, We're going to talk about chapter one, which is called All the World Needs a Jolt, Social Movements and Political Crisis in Medieval Europe. So this chapter is basically laying the groundwork for a lot of what's going to come next in the book. It's a chapter where we go into what feudal society was actually like for a little while, how it was organized, and then what kind of historical developments were churning in that society uh, leading up to the birth of capitalism. We see how that system was in crisis and something was going to shift, something was going to give. And in fact, The name of the chapter, All the World Needs a Jolt, kind of refers to this idea that there was something that was at a breaking point about the way that society had kind of been run in Europe for about a thousand years. And then what we see happening historically is that capitalism was constructed to basically remedy that situation to the advantage of the ruling class. At the beginning of this chapter, Federici reiterates and reinforces her argument that capitalism was not was not like a forward leap and an improvement over what came before but that it was as she calls it a counter revolution <laughs> a counter revolution that destroyed the possibilities that were emerging from the struggle against feudalism and it's sort of like clambering to solidify power in the face of a fracturing of power yeah yeah, all of this, all of these, as we'll get into, there was a lot of developments that were like fracturing the society, introducing these new changes, these new mobilities, these resistance movements, all of this stuff. And it was a time when a lot, it could have gone a lot of different ways, a lot of different possibilities, you know, and capitalism uh, was constructed as like the counter revolutionary force that clamped down on all of that possibility or clamp down might not be the right word, but it channeled it into a very class stratified Hmm. direction that fed into the system that we all now know very well. So that's what this chapter is about. So before Federici actually gets into what life was like in feudal society, she, she explains what the transition actually into feudalism looked like and how, what life was like before there were serfs and lords and lands with peasants on them who worked for the lords. 
what came before that up until say the like between the fifth and seventh centuries was the long history of the Roman Empire. And within the Roman Empire, all of the lands that the Romans colonized and controlled were run primarily on the labor of slaves. And in some towns, there would even be more enslaved people than there were free people. They mm -hmm. conquered places and they put people in charge and gave people, even if they were locals to that area, slaves to work for them. Slave labor was absolutely the foundation and fuel for the Roman Empire. So, obviously, when you have a situation where there are a lot of enslaved people and they outnumber the people who are controlling them, then you have a situation which is ripe for unrest and resistance and even war. Leading up to the 5th century, and including going into up into the 7th century, there are pretty constant uprisings and battles going on with the enslaved people organizing, arming themselves, and fighting and claiming territory. There are some maroon communities made up of escaped enslaved people in a lot of parts of Europe that had been dominated by the Roman Empire, and some of the more successful ones were actually in the Basque area. So the feudal system arose in response to, or was created, I guess, more would be more appropriate, in response to the breakdown of the Roman system of slave-based economy. And yeah. um, within the era kind of between the 5th and 7th centuries, the forces of power understood that they actually had to start making a deal because they were, the system was falling apart. Um, there was a lot of armed resistance and there was, there were also the creation of maroon communities that were thriving on the edges of the empire holding. So they actually started giving a little bit of land to people who were enslaved and that tran made the transition from enslaved subjects to serfs and serfs were the peasants who had some land of their own or were able to use land in common, but also owed some of what they produced from their labor to the lords who own the land. Yeah, there's a really interesting and kind of confusing property relation in feudalism where mm -hmm. where the serfs actually owned nothing. And all of the land, the land either belonged to the church or the nobility. Right. And the serfs lived on the land of the Lord. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they all had landlords. But they kind of had their own land there mm -hmm. in the sense that they could farm it for their own subsistence and that it was inherited by their descendants, mm -hmm. you know, and, and passed down. And so there would be fields that would be, you know, worked by the same family for generations and generations as if it was their land, mm -hmm. even though all of it technically belonged to the lords, right. you know. And so an important part of feudal relations was that the serfs actually could provide for themselves. Mm -hmm. This is something you know, that became a much more scarce privilege under capitalism mm -hmm. was access to land by which you could um, ensure your own reproduction mm -hmm. in the Marxist sense. And also, importantly, besides those 
kind of privately owned <laughs> or personally owned pieces of land. Yeah. Uh, the commons, which would be like the rivers and the creeks and the ponds and the woods and all of this sort of like extra non-agricultural land was held in common and people who might have been more on the margins of being able to work or labor were able to often get a living off of those pieces of land. And so a a lot of times this might be like um, older women specifically were people who were known to create livelihoods from the commons. So they would gather firewood and sell it or gather herbs and make medicine and sell them or they would gather, um, you know, wild foods. And it was a place where you could not have uh, the European style of agriculture, but still bring things in Mm -hmm. from the abundance of the common land. Yeah. Yeah. And all of that was held in common and shared. Um, And that was part of what made the feudal system seem like somewhat of an improvement, probably, to what had been going on before. For sure. Even though the peasants were completely subservient to the lords mm-hmm. and was were always having to like pay them and work for them and do all of this, there was a lot more autonomy. Mm-hmm. There was more autonomy than under slavery. And just to be clear, I'm not sure if we got the dates. Mm-hmm. Did we do the dates? But the breakdown of slavery was like 5th or 6th century AD. Um, so by the time that we're talking about here in most of the book, it's about a thousand year period mm-hmm. of the middle ages, right? Where the feudal system was, you know, uh, not uniform and homogenous the whole time, mm-hmm. but where it predominated as the predominant social relation. Um, I think I should say like, as long as we're talking about the commons again, mm-hmm. maybe this is a good time to, to briefly say something about what's been called the tragedy of the commons. Mm, yeah. Should we talk about that? Sure. Yes. So you might have heard of this, the tragedy of the commons, and if you've never heard of the tragedy of the commons, you can look it up. It's this idea that's floating around out there that if there's a resource that's just held in common that anybody in the community can access without limitation, Mm -hmm. there's no gatekeepers on the commons, then the commons will be steadily depleted because everybody is a Mm self-interested actor Mm -hmm. and is going to like basically take more than their share Mm -hmm. uh, because that's how humans as an economic agent work. So we're all going to take more than our share and it's going to be an unsustainable way of administering a resource or land because, you know, basically everyone is like, Oh, well, you know, it won't hurt if I take a little bit more of these roots or if I, you know, um, let my animals graze for a few more days or something. And if everybody thinks like that, then it drives the commons into depletion. Mm-hmm. Um, and I see this come up all the time, you know, when, when you're talking with people about the idea of sharing mm-hmm. and of holding things in common and that it just can't work because of this. Uh, but the tragedy of the commons, just like a lot of these other things that we've talked about, like last episode, when we talked about Adam Smith's mm-hmm. idea about how primitive accumulation was accomplished, it was really just the idea of somebody sitting in a room who was already kind of poisoned by enlightenment, rationalist Mm -hmm. economic thought doing a thought experiment about what it seems like would happen. And also justifying what had happened. 
Yeah, and also justifying what had happened, you know, so maybe with an agenda that mm-hmm. they might not be, like, realizing, but already, like, with an idea of the atomized, self-interested individual mm-hmm. firmly embedded in their conception of humanity. Right. Um, which is basically the precondition for capitalist logic. Right. Is that people are individuals that are rational actors that want to maximize their self-interest. And what this book that we're reading is here to tell us basically is that that whole idea (laughs) of what a person is and how they act, something that had to be imposed, Mm. you know, on people that, that had to be imposed on an unwilling population that did not behave that way. And that that was an alien conception too. You know, like they had to be, people had to be formed in that image, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, to only think for themselves about to themselves. To only think for themselves, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and to maximize their own self-interest in mm-hmm. all of this, right? And so, the tragedy of the commons presupposes that. Mm-hmm. Presupposes that people are rationally self-interested actors who are going to deplete the commons. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, you can run like a you can run like a game theory scenario in a computer and see how the commons gets depleted. But it starts with this assumption, Mm -hmm. but it turns out like so many other things that when the commons actually existed as a common resource, that the, the tragedy of the commons did not apply Mm -hmm. in most situations, you know, in the vast majority of situations, because people had different relations with each other Mm -hmm. and had, mechanisms of social management of common resources Mm -hmm. that counteracted the tendency to deplete the resource, Mm -hmm. you know? Uh, So it's not that it's not an, like the idea is not that self-interest does not exist in the world or that it's not something worth thinking about, you know, Um, or that it can never happen uh, or that it was just invented in the year 1500 or something and it didn't exist before then. That's, that's not the point, but that when embedded in larger social communal, uh, relations, then people tend to come to agreements, whether they're spoken or not in writing or not, you know, about how to manage common resources in a way that doesn't deplete the resources. And so historically, and anthropologically, the the tragedy of the commons does not bear out. It's just a speculation. It's just a what if that, as you said, tends to legitimize mm-hmm. you know this hell that we live in today. Well, I do want to say one thing, and it's that I think that the reason that people do have some resonance with the tragedy of the commons is that they've all seen something like it because we have lived in a world where we've been indoctrinated with settler colonial capitalism, where it is every man for himself, where we are all in competition, where we are not cooperating Mm -hmm. and we are not working together and thinking about each other. And so in that way you can be like, well, yeah, the tragedy of the commons is uh, Bundy dropping off his 2000 cattle in the middle of the public lands, you know, just looking out for himself and not, and not caring what happens to the land, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, that's what happens when something's held in common. You know, and so because we yeah, all the have... Or the over-harvest of a medicinal herb. Sure. Right. So we do see examples, but the examples, as I think you're saying right. here, the examples are embedded within right. uh, a capitalist framework that incentivizes self-interest. Right. And, and also puts people um, in situations where they're like 
where they can only have extreme extractive relationships to, with nature and with resources to survive. Mm-hmm. And so right. when you put people in those settings mm-hmm. and then describe their behavior as human nature yeah. rather than situational, then right. that's when you can create these theories around how people just are. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. You know. Okay, so anyway, feudal society is made up by three pretty distinct classes of people, right? And so there's the clergy and the church, right? which is a major... I mean, this was a period where the Catholic Church was a huge force in society, almost the biggest political force. Right. Uh, and the clergy and just the church and all of the functionaries of the church and, and the clergy was actually a, you know, a, like a major part of society, even just population-wise. And there's all these hierarchies within right. the church, and the church in its various forms was some of the biggest landowners in society, and people were serfs of the church and, you know, lived on church land, and the church was their lord and all of this. So that was one part. And then there was the nobility, and the nobility are these people who were theoretically they're like the warrior class they were like the descendants of of the people who like won major battles and secured territory for people and all of this stuff and they were the ones who like lived in the castles and had these big manors and then they had tons of serfs or vassals who lived on their land so most people would live on a feudal manor Mm -hmm. of some kind that you know in our archetypal thinking about it. it has a castle on it you know and the lord lives in the castle and the lord is a vaguely military personage you know who has soldiers and mm-hmm. all of this and then sometimes the serfs would have to fight too and we'll get to that and then there's just the peasantry mm-hmm. which is you know the vast the teeming masses of people who didn't have land of their own had no property had no status really uh, and were dependent on the lords of the church for protection mm-hmm. and for a place to be. Right. You know, many of the serfs lived in villages, right? So a village is actually a specific thing in feudalism, which is a community on a manor, mm-hmm. you know, on a feudal estate of peasants, mm-hmm. of serfs, and the surrounding agricultural lands that the serfs tended. No. And then that's different from like a town or a city, which are not part of the feudal estate. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You know, and so the serfs are living on some lord's land and they have their own lives and they get to raise their food and have their families and pass on their land and have life among themselves in the village. But they also like owe all this stuff to their lords. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, so what the serfs had to do in exchange, theoretically, (laughs) for having a place to live and grow food was that they had to, they had their own land to work, but they had to give, um, they had to work in the fields that were just the Lord's fields as well. And they had to give a percentage of their produce for grains and a percentage of their livestock or poultry to the landed gentry, to the lord whose manor they lived on. The percentage that you had to give was called the tallage, and the tallage was not a flat rate. It actually went up and down at the whim of the lord. So they could say, actually, I want this much produce right now, or I want this much grain. And if it was a rough year for you, that could be most of what you grew. Um, but you wouldn't get to determine that, and not giving full tallage could be punished legally. Um, right. 
And... So this is a lot. I mean, already, you not only have to work the Lord's field. Right. You also have to give up some of your own. Right. You know, on top of that. Yeah. And alongside this the whole time, uh, you also had to give part of the produce of your labor to the church. And so... The tithe. The church dem- demanded a tithe, which traditionally was 10% of whatever you had. They regularly asked for that, but they also extorted the peasants in all of these other ways. They would demand money to be forgiven for sins after confession. They would demand money for making sure that your lost loved ones who had passed on would actually get to go to heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, there were all these ways that the church at this point was extorting money from the peasants. So they were getting it on both sides. And I wanted to add this to something that you said earlier, just to explain this, because she doesn't go into this in this chapter. And I think it's kind of important. Um, the church and the aristocracy, their power was so interwoven that the underlying mythos of this culture was that all of the royalty, all of the aristocracy were actually there by divine right, that they had been appointed by God. And so there was this Mm -hmm. religious reasoning for them even having the position of power. So if you question that position of power or question the fact that you had to give up your labor, you're questioning the religious order. Mm -hmm. Um, So you owed by God's law, basically, part of what you grew and made to both the lords and to the church. Yeah. So that's called the divine right of kings. Another couple things that were demanded of the serfs was military service. Oh, right. Yeah. It might not come up Mm -hmm. that you would be called for military service, but you could always be called if you were a man. Yeah. You could always be called if the Lord was going to wage some, you know, campaign. And then also there's mention in here, I mean, just talking about extortion of things like to have access to the mill to grind your wheat into flour, you had to pay a fee. Right. And the mill was owned by the Lord. You know, so you didn't get to use the mill just by virtue of being a part of that community. You had to, like, pay on top of that. Because there was money. Mm -hmm. This is a thing that, you know, the monetization of life and money relations became much more of a thing later. Mm -hmm. But there was... Money did exist, you know, Mm -hmm. all of these things that became huge features of capitalism. Well, not all of them, but many of these things existed in the Middle Ages, but they just weren't central the way that they would become. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah. And there's a couple of things that maybe we should touch on about how women in feudal society Mm -hmm. were in a bit of a stronger position than what it would become later. Mm -hmm. And the notes that I made here, it has to do with like in the village among the serfs, the work that was done was done on a subsistence basis. Everybody was engaged equally in the work of subsistence. So growing food, preserving food, mending the fences, keeping everything going was everybody's work. And that was not divided up gender-wise between men's work and women's work at that time period, you know, where the men earned money and the women did the non-monetized work of social reproduction. And so because of that, the gender division wasn't as pronounced. Mm -hmm. So women were not oppressed in that way. And also, um, there a lot of women were able to move on their own to cities and have all kinds of jobs, many, many professions that we might think of as being dominated by men. Mm -hmm. Women also did during the Middle Ages um, from 
being a doctor to being a mason to being a pharmacist, like all of these things women did too in the cities. They were allowed that sort of autonomy there and even could just live with other women and not have to be part of a sort of like what we might think of as a traditional family unit in the way that we think of the capitalist family style. Yeah, the cities are an interesting terrain mm-hmm. um, in this time period because it, it falls a little bit outside of the right. like church, peasant, lord, tripartite division of society because the cities were, they were places where there were there was big markets and there were artisans and a merchant class and all of this stuff was kind of going on and fomenting in the cities mm-hmm. and it wasn't as strictly laid out. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of divisions, maybe even more divisions, you right. know? But it wasn't as like rigidly circumscribed as the broad picture of feudal society that I just talked about, you know? And part of that was, yeah, that women could experiment and partake in different ways of living mm-hmm. if they were able to like make it to the city. Also within the feudal system, just as there always is when there is an unfair system of power, <laughs> there was resistance. And the peasants were constantly resisting and fighting back in many of the ways that you, any of you who worked in a situation you didn't like have also done. Peasants would slow down, work really slow, not show up, um, sometimes like leave crops in the fields to spoil, um, not come to work when they were supposed to. They would bring in... Work sloppily. Work sloppily. Take long breaks. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, also like bringing inferior or like sub subpar produce or livestock to their lords as their tallage. There's a funny quote about that. Yeah, it's actually like quite comical. One of my favorite parts of this chapter is reading about all of the different ways that the serfs passively resisted the demands. Part of what people would do is when they owed you know, a hen or, or a goose or a sheep or something to the Lord, they would give their worst, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah, who wouldn't? yeah. yeah. <laughs> there's this quote about a law or some kind of a decree that was put into effect about what kind of livestock was acceptable to give. And it says the hen then is placed in front of a fence or a gate. If frightened and she has the strength to fly or scramble over, the bailiff must accept her. She is fit. <laughs> well, like you just picture them bringing these like hobbling, like yeah. in, um, old and like <laughs> unable to move animals, and you know. So the chicken has to have the strength to like <laughs> to go over the gate if it's scared. And uh, and then about a gosling, a baby goose. It says a gosling again must be accepted if it is mature enough to pluck grass without losing its balance and sitting down ignominiously. <laughs> that seems to lie on the eye of the beholder yeah definitely. <laughs> oh it's so funny um added to this was also things like refusing to be conscripted into military service so like desertion right showing up and then leaving or not showing up mm-hmm. uh and then there was always the flight to town or mm-hmm. the flight to the city yeah just leaving um, the manor yeah. yeah just leaving the manor you know, and just trying your luck. So all of this um, is kind of the texture, some of the texture of revolt mm-hmm. against the system. Yeah, and then interestingly, the way that the royalty responded to the, these 
many forms of resistance was actually to introduce more money into the situation and to monetize labor and yeah. to monetize rent instead of it being produce or livestock that you gave, you had to actually give money and bringing more money into the situation brought in debt. Mm-hmm. And that is where we get more and more of a stratification of class relations, even within the serfs and the peasants. Mm-hmm. Right. And they talk about lords granting the liberty to hold stallage, which means that <laughs> serfs could go to the market and sell goods. Mm-hmm. And rarely they would maybe even be allowed to sell land. You know, this was something that was starting to creep in a little bit. But all of this goes along with the monetization, right? Because where there's markets, there's money, all of this. And so the lords, yeah, like began to accept money instead of work or mm-hmm livestock or produce as a way to like basically pay your rent yeah and that was a real wild snowball mm-hmm. because to some people it seemed freeing mm-hmm. right. to be able to not work to not have to go and do the labor in the fields for the lord if you mm-hmm. could just find a way to earn some money and pay that way and especially you know and this is something that we haven't talked about much but the peasantry was not homogenous in the sense that the, the peasants were not all equal And so there were divisions within the peasantry. Some families owned more land or had control over more land, Mm -hmm. um, just kind of controlled more resources. And these people could maybe sell a good bit of their produce and pay their rent that way, while Mm -hmm. villagers that had access to less or were in a more compromised position then had to suddenly come up with money Mm -hmm. that they didn't have and they couldn't easily earn Uh, in order to pay their rent, you know, and then you have situations where some peasants are going into debt, where some, while some of them are actually accumulating more and getting richer, and you Mm -hmm. have peasants working for other peasants for money, Mm -hmm. you know, the ones that could earn more money employed other ones so that they could make a little money to pay their rent. And so the monetization, the influx of money and money relations is part of the story here because it created, it intensified a lot of social divisions within the peasantry, for sure. And also what you see here with the creation of rent and the creation of wage labor, you see the seeds of what will become capitalism. Oh, yeah. So that this is how it happens. Um, right, right. And you have to kind of wonder, you know, I mean, it's just, it's interesting to look at this historically because... The serfs didn't want to work for the Lord. Mm-hmm. So the Lords say, okay, I'll take money. Right. And it's like a concession. Mm-hmm. It's like an answer to your protest. Right. We'll do it this way then. Mm-hmm. And to some peasants that might have at least initially seemed like a win for them. But in the way, in this way that history so often works, where there's a ruling class <laughs> that can take advantage of developments, it actually sowed the seeds for a much more insidious form of exploitation. Part of the, one of the points that Federici makes that I think is really fascinating and I hadn't actually thought about before was that once there was a monetization of one's labor, mm-hmm. then you, it was much harder to tell when you were working for yourself versus when you were working for the Lord. Yeah. And so, you were just working. Yeah. And yeah, totally. that part is yes. really interesting because it kind of, it's, it's how it gets in your head. 
yeah. that your own time and space is not, is not yours. That was huge for me too. Yeah. Yeah. Because when you had to go and work on the Lord's estate, it was clear mm-hmm. you were not working for yourself right? and putting food on your table when you were doing that. And so you could measure your own exploitation is the way she puts it, I right, think, right. by being like, these are the days that are not mine. Totally. You know? Yeah. But then once everything just becomes money, then, and this is the way it is for us. Absolutely. And it's like the thing mm-hmm. that, you know, the money that you make is for, is for all of it. You know, part of the money that we make in a wage society, you know, part of that is your rent or your mm-hmm. taxes which go to the Lord, basically, you know, and then, but then part of that is for your own food and for your own leisure and for your own subsistence and all of that, you know, and and it's not, there's not a firm way to divide it. And so it makes it fuzzier. Mm -hmm. It makes it harder to see where your exploitation lies. Yeah. I'm really glad that you brought that part up because that stuck out for me too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That was a big thing in this chapter. There's another big fallout from mm. the money, from right. the monetization and the money society that she touches on here that I think is really important. Yeah, for sure. And it's the, are you talking about the rise of anti-Semitism? Yes. Mm-hmm. How does that work again? Yeah. So as the influence of money grew in feudal society, anti-Semitism also grew. And this has to do with the fact that Jewish people uh, were not allowed very many professions mm-hmm. in the Middle Ages, and money lending was one of them, as a lot of people know. And previously, this money lending was mostly money lending to kings, popes, mm-hmm. and the clergy. Mm-hmm. And so the money being lent to these like higher status people in society, right. Christian money lenders wanted to get in on that, oh. and the Jews were displaced uh, but that was still one of the only professions available to, to them. So they were forced to money lend to, oh, to the peasants, to the peasants and oh, to poorer people. Okay. And so therefore Jews became a target mm. of peasants who were indebted oh, and yeah. were experiencing financial stress, you know, because the money lender Mm-hmm. was someone who they could directly vent their anger towards. It's like the shooting the messenger thing where you blame the person whose job it is to collect yeah. on what the person who's actually in charge yeah. wants yeah. from you. Yeah. Yeah.
we talked about a bunch of different forms of everyday resistance、mm-hmm. to the exploitation that the serfs were facing, but there was also like much bigger, yeah, much bigger historical, seismic, cultural eruptions、mm-hmm. against the feudal order、mm-hmm. uh, that Federici spent some time on in this chapter. Yeah, so there were. We're going to talk、uh, later about some of the more insurrectionary movements that were happening during this time, including some battles and、um, even wars. Some of them are called uprisings. Yeah.、Um, but we want to spend some time talking about one of the more interesting elements of resistance in the Middle Ages. Which were the heretical movements away from the church and away from feudal life in general. And before I go into talking about what some of these heretical sects look like,、um, I want to delineate between a couple of different kinds. So Federici talks here about there being、um, about millenarian. Sects and heretic sects. Now, millenarian is a term in this sense. A Christian millenarian sect are people who believe that the end times are upon us and that the apocalypse is here. Usually, this is based on some of what is in the Book of Revelation at the end of the Bible.、Mm-hmm. And the millenarian sects within the Middle Ages were people who saw that there was just a lot of upheaval. Also saw some of the ways that they felt they were experiencing hell on earth right then,、um, because of the class relations and the extortion and exploitation they were dealing with, and they thought that these were the end times. And I think this is an important thing to remember because we are again in a situation where a lot of people all across the political and religious spectrum think that we're in the end times right now too, and so this is another interesting. Idea that keeps that's kind of like mirroring again,、mm-hmm. um, but、uh, the millenarian sects were more interested in. They believed that there might be a more ideal society coming, but that it was going to be coming through bringing Jesus back to Earth. What Federici is more interested in, and what I can say that I'm more interested in, <laughs> were the heretical sects that were not waiting on Jesus to come back. Mm-hmm. And who were actually invested in creating a new society here? And the more organized heretical sects. Yeah. Because yeah, as she talks about the millenarian movements, a lot of times they would just kind of pop off, right? Kind of spontaneously because like a charismatic leader、mm-hmm. would, you know, would be in the streets like proselytizing and and making these prophecies that. Yeah, that like Jesus was going to return, or that some kind of like shift was about to happen,、mm-hmm. that it was all coming down, that it was going to change, you know. And they would get a lot of followers, but it was usually short-lived, and they would kind of extinguish themselves,、mm-hmm. or、right. they would be pretty easy to put down because、uh-huh. it was it was more just like a surge,、mm-hmm. a surge of exuberance, a surge of enthusiasm about. A prophetic、mm-hmm. revelation,、right. and built around these charismatic figures. Where and this time was ripe for them.、Uh, there were, were so many. They were popping off all the time. Yeah, there were so many where, yeah, where where people would just flock behind somebody who was like doomed to the clergy and the you know and、uh, the lords are gonna fall and and、uh, so it was more more like visceral and emotive、mm-hmm. and maybe cathartic. Right. Than organized resistance,、right. you know. So we're going to spend most of our time talking about the organized resistance,、right. yeah. 
So the heretic sects that were more organized and were trying to create a new society within the shell of the feudal mm -hmm. system were, there are a lot of different ones, and some of them we probably don't even know the names of anymore, but there were definitely the Waldensis, or Waldensians, some people say both. Um, there were the Cathars, which is not what they call themselves, but the Cathars were, they called themselves good Christians, or good men and good women. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> there were the Brethren of the Free Spirit, and uh, there are some others, too, that it's up for debate whether or not they would be called uh, heretical sects in the same way. The Albigensians. Oh, the Albigensians. The spirituals, the apostolics. But generally, those, those heretical sects had a lot of different ways of applying what they believed, and... But they did usually share beliefs that were heretical, not just against the church itself, but also against the feudal system. So the way that we talked earlier about how the church and the aristocracy were absolutely interwoven, the heretical sects were against both in general. Um, they had a really strong critique of the Catholic Church and the extortion and opulence that members of the clergy had access to because of drawing money from the peasants. Um, and they, because right, this was this time period where, as we know, partially from the history of the Protestant Reformation, mm -hmm. that the Catholic Church was, they wanted money for everything, mm -hmm. you know, like they wouldn't bury somebody right. and give rights to them without money. Right. Like everything was extortion and monetized and you could buy your way into heaven through these indulgences. And, and a lot of the people in higher positions within the clergy had very ostentatious um, presentation of their wealth. Mm -hmm. And so you had these people walking around richly adorned with rich foods and access to beautiful housing while the peasants were seeing that that was from this extortion of their labor. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the heretical sects went back to sort of an early Christian idea of life where they embraced intentional poverty. They denounced private property. They denounced social hierarchies. They denounced the accumulation of wealth. They emphasized individual empowerment through divine contact. So that's an interesting part where a lot of the, especially the brethren of the free spirit, believe that if you had the Holy Spirit in you, you were not capable of sin. So with that one little theological belief, you can just get out from under the whole idea of sin and all of the power of the clergy has over you because you are no less special than they are. And in fact, they might not even have the Holy Spirit in them. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so it was a way of having individual divinity and access to God that's direct all of these traditions also spoke in their own language instead of Latin, which was, which was what was read at the Catholic Mass. Mm -hmm. They spoke in vernacular languages. In their vernacular yeah. languages. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, I want to say as that there is this stuff about individual salvation, the movements were also pretty communal. Absolutely. Right. You know, so the theology might be about the individual being perfect and having a connection with the divine, but the lifestyle, mm -hmm. <laughs> to, 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 to use a modern term, was communal like the mm -hmm. early church, right. like the early Christian church. Right. Yeah. And uh, they would have what we might call land projects or communes. They had little nodules of places where people would live communally to share labor. And they had... They had <laughs> they had a network across nation states and county states um, where people could go 
along their network and always have a place to stay and work. Yeah, this is one of the amazing things as far as the organization of it, because mm-hmm. it's these internationalist, and this was before the modern nation state, but but like across Europe, a network of communities and safe houses and places where you could commune and connect with other of your brethren Mm -hmm. um, in whatever sect that you were a part of. And it was like this very, it was this very extensive organized uh, society that existed in permanent revolt against the power of the Catholic Mm -hmm. church. And there were many layers of it all. Yeah. And each of the sects is definitely worth learning about, learning about Mm -hmm. and digging into. Cause there's strange ones. Who were the ones that like, uh, they dressed like beggars, but only in the finest cloth or something. I, yeah. You I, know, yeah. they all express themselves according to these very mm-hmm. esoteric and particular interpretations mm-hmm. of what they felt like it meant to be a good Christian. Some of them were against work and you could only get money or sustenance through alms and through begging because you were not supposed to work. Yeah, well, right. Like work was unchristian right. in some sense, at For least some of them. the way that the feudal society kind of mm-hmm. produced work and mm-hmm. and developed work as an oppressive force. So they would not work and only beg, you know, and that was part of their theology. Mm-hmm. And in, in general, the heretical yeah. sects had much better status and situation for women. Um, women could be ordained, they could hold power, they could cohabitate with men they weren't married to or anyone else. They could live on their own. Um, they could live with other women. And there were definitely less, much less strident rules around sex and marriage. Um, there, so Federici does, you know, question like whether or not the predominance of women within the heretical sex led to the doctrines of free love that a lot of them had, but definitely there was, there was less of a like legal status given to marriage and to sexual relations in most of the sex. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting. Some of them, especially the Cathars, have more of almost a body hatred, um, a despising of this whole material realm that seems almost Gnostic. And I think that their lineage actually dates back to some of the early Gnostic sects. Oh, interesting. Um, but even with some of the body hating sex, this would show up looking like, well, we just don't believe in procreation. So a lot of them still had sex. They had all kinds of sex. Mm-hmm. They were often accused once they were being persecuted by the Inquisition of sodomy and um, non-procreative sex acts. Sometimes that could even just mean practicing withdrawal if people were having a more heteronormative type of sex. Mm-hmm. But definitely when within a lot of these communities, there was a wider spectra- spectrum of sexual activity because reproduction procreation was not the point yeah. of sex. And right. so a queer reading of this would be that maybe some of us might see our ancestors in that lineage in these communities because mm-hmm. they were living together communally and were not prioritizing creating mm-hmm. more labor power. Yeah, there was a lot of space within these heretic movements to have other to have practices around sex and reproduction that were other than the norm Mm -hmm. and outside of what was prescribed by the church authorities, you know, and this was definitely, um, Federici highlights this as a major development and that it was read as a threat, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and it's really, it's hard to overstate just actually how threatening, Mm -hmm. how much of a threat to, uh, the ruling classes, these heretical movements were, in fact, the inquisition, Mm -hmm. 
the Inquisition was specifically created to deal with heresy. Right. You know, to, to deal, and not just like individual acts of heresy, but these heretical movements in particular. And the Inquisition had a long lifespan and it would make targets of lots of different kinds of people mm-hmm. in its various branches and its various incarnations. But it was actually created in its originary, you know, to, to root out the Albigensians, mm-hmm. you know, and make sure that they, all their strongholds were demolished and burned and sometimes like literal crusades were actually launched against these communities i know we don't talk much about the crusades that were within europe like sent from parts of europe to other parts of europe Mm -hmm. to take out the heretics Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and that was a big part of what the inquisition was doing as well i want to add here that um we should be careful not to underestimate how powerful these actions were that the creation of these communities and these networks And I think that sometimes certain words and ideas can become watered down through what we think of through history. So the word commune or the word free love, the term free love could be ones that we already have a lot of associations with, with like hippies or with um, what that can look like, you know? Yeah. Um, But I will say that when I read um, a book about this heretical movement called The Movement of the Free Spirit, by Raoul Vanagam, one of the situationists. Um, I read this back in the late 90s the first time. I was so incredibly moved by his translation of some of the original source material from the Inquisition. And these people were doing what they were doing and creating these lives, even though thousands of them were getting burnt at the stake. Yeah, They were putting their lives on the line to create these lives worth living, you know, and there was a lot of risk. There was so much risk. And when they when you when we hear the word free love, that might just sound like like swingers or bad poly or something when we hear that term. But when you actually read the transcripts of some of these confessions, uh, it's actually it's so empowering and beautiful. I remember one of them and I can't remember what sect this woman was part of within the free spirit movement but a woman who was tortured and who under confession said this she said that the other women who lived in the commune told her um you at the convent you just study these dead books on calfskins we study this the book of the flesh (laughs) wow and (laughs) the book of the flesh being like pleasure and the body and this embodied um holiness because they believed the holy spirit lived within them and then they were Mm -hmm. not capable of sin yeah you know and they were creating these very vibrant pleasure rich lives at a time when it was very hard to do that yeah yeah to dig into this history to think about how much was at stake how risky it was, and also how much they had to protect themselves with, yeah, networks of safe houses and strongholds and probably code words and secrecy. Mm -hmm. You know, it feels kind of romantic and exciting, Mm -hmm. but also very perilous. Yeah. But they were doing it together. Right. And it was a communal undertaking uh, and a form of resistance. And it felt worth it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it was worth it. There was a time when Janet and I became really interested in these heresies, religious heresies, not just in the Christian world, but uh, the movement of the free spirit, the heretical movements of the Middle Ages were a big part of that. And yeah, this book by Raoul Van Eigen, it's probably not how you really say his name, but (laughs) 
um, he's the author of The Revolution of Everyday Life, really seminal situationist text from France in the 60s. Uh, such a good book. But he wrote this book called The Movement of the Free Spirit, where he goes through a lot of these sects, and it's beautiful. It's beautifully written. But I think when we were in this phase where we were really into this stuff, uh, you know, people would sometimes not understand what the appeal of learning about religious heresy was especially for people who just see religion as inherently oppressive, mm -hmm. right? Like why, so they had a weird idea about Jesus, like what's interesting about that? But part of what Van Eigham says in his book that I also think is true is just that, and what we've been trying to say here is that these were resistance movements. They were resistance movements against the power structure of their day. Mm -hmm. And because the power structure was so thoroughly Christian through and through, and the whole fabric of life was Christian. If this was the fabric of life, much more than it is for us now, mm -hmm. even though Christianity is still a huge force, then it just, it, it makes sense that big expressions of resistance would also be expressed in religious terms, mm -hmm. you know, in the terms of the dominant ideology. Mm -hmm. You know, so instead of just throwing off the category of religion entirely, these folks reinterpreted mm -hmm. Jesus and religion, you know, in a way that was so radical that it was called heresy by the church. And also, for me, there's just this beauty in that, which is what drew us to it, you know, 20 years ago or whenever we were reading this to begin with. There's this beauty that no matter how solid and severe a system seems that is foundational in our society, there will always be cracks in it that are going to let light in. Mm -hmm. And that light is what these people created their lives by. There's a few pages in here that talk about the rise of the cities and towns mm -hmm. as a site of mm -hmm. just social struggle, but also as they just became a more important place in society, mm -hmm. you know, because the Middle Ages, if we're talking about the whole span of the Middle Ages from the 5th century all the way to the 15th, then that period includes, like, the rise of cities, mm -hmm. you know, from, right. and especially in, like, the 11 and 1200s, there was a big period of urbanization, towns got bigger, there was more trade and all of this stuff, so more and more people were going to these towns mm -hmm. to live. And so, since one of the wonders of learning about history is seeing how everything is really intricately connected, <laughs> in this next part we see how the growth of cities and the increase in urbanization in uh, the later Middle Ages actually sets up some very important historical events that happen next. As you might imagine from the growth of cities, cities require a lot of building, they take up a lot of land, and they house a lot of people that have to be fed. So therefore, the growth of cities and towns entailed a lot of deforestation and increasing agriculture. So deforestation for building materials and then turned into farmland. And sometimes the deforested land that was turned into cultivation was not great land for it. It was hilly, it was mountainous, it was prone to erosion. And for these reasons and a bunch of other reasons that would be, that are really interesting from the lens of like an ecologist or a permaculturist or something, all of these developments led to 
erosion of topsoil,、mm -hmm. the depletion of agricultural lands. At the same time as population was increasing, because people were just converting forest in a short-term gain type of way into booming population, and this was also coming when there was a warm spell that happened、mm -hmm. for a while, and people could grow a lot of food, and population really went up. But then, when soil fertility and degradation of agricultural land really hit, there was a famine. Right? Yeah, because it got colder then too. Um, what you were describing in the worm spell, when the cities were growing, there was, was actually a period of growth and prosperity in Europe between the 11th to the 13th century. There was just a time of like growing wealth and also growing population, and so the population rose as you were talking about. Some、yeah. of it was concentrated in the cities, but even out in the countryside, there were more and more people. But at the same time, I mean, partially, as you're saying, like in response to. That burst of population, the soils got really depleted, but then the warm spell went away and the cold came, and there was an incredibly wet spring in 1315. And because of the deforestation that you're talking about, they created this really big flood zone. And so parts that where places where the trees would have kept the water or held the water in somewhat, the trees were gone,、mm -hmm. and there were hillsides. And landslides and washouts, and so the crops were just taken out. You know,、um, yeah. a lot of crops rotted, and the crop failure lasted actually until the summer harvest of 1317. So there were two solid years of not being able to grow food. And people, for one thing, the soil was depleted, so what they did grow didn't produce as much. But a lot of the crops just didn't even make it.、Mm -hmm. People had to eat their seed crops. They had to eat their stores, so they didn't have stuff to plant. Once the weather got better. After 1317, they didn't even have as much to plant or start with. Yeah.、Um, so this like population boom drained the resources, and then a lot of people died.、Uh, people were weakened by the famine, and recovery, in a true sense, where you were able to really just like put back into the land what you were used to putting in for growing food, really didn't happen until 1322. Yeah. So this is the Great Famine, is what it's called. Right. Um, of 1315 to 1322, and the Great Famine. The for those who think more about holistic health, so what you've got here is a weakened population. You have child、uh, people are barely able to feed themselves, so they're not. People aren't getting pregnant much. They're definitely not carrying kids to term very often, partially because they just don't have enough to eat. Um, and so, population was already down, and the population was generally, especially of the peasants, was generally weakened, which is a really hospitable territory for a pathogen. And such a pathogen came along. Yeah, and the cities, urbanization is、right. a huge factor in the in the emergence and the spread of the plague. Right, and and trade. Right between cities. Right. Oh, that makes sense too. So, since there was a growing economy of trade, and the pathogens were moving across from place to place, but you also had people kind of crammed together in close quarters. Yeah. That created a really、um, a very fertile petri dish for the bubonic plague to take off. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, right on the heels then of the Great Famine. I mean, a couple decades later, but in long time, pretty much right on the heels. Of the Great Famine is the Black Death, the bubonic plague, which came right around 1350 and killed, on average, about a third of the population of Europe. A third of the people died. Yeah, yeah, 
And one of the reasons why the plague and the famine are so important is that the population of Europe went way down, and that very much changed the terrain of social relations all throughout Europe. So interestingly, there were less people、um, to draw from for labor, and that increased labor rights. But also, I, I want to highlight this thing. Feder- Increase the power of、labor. the power of labor,、yeah. right?、Mm-hmm. I want to highlight something that Federici says that I just think is really interesting about the leveling factor of the plague and how being so inundated with death all around you really changed people's perspectives and what they were willing to put up with. Oh yeah,、um, she yeah. says that this is a quote: familiarity with death also undermines social discipline. Confronted with the possibility of sudden death, people no longer cared to work or to abide by social and sexual regulations, but tried to have the best of times, feasting for as long as they could without thought of the future. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. So they were. So even prior to、yeah. the demographic crisis, crisis, right? Is yes, this, this what you're talking this about? This underlying shift in just like what's life about, and、mm-hmm. what am I willing to to put up with from the ruling class? Since I could die at any minute. Yeah, because you're staring death more in the face,、mm-hmm. uh, and so it makes you, yeah, less tolerant. Right.、Mm-hmm. But also, in general, labor, like as you said, labor power arose because they just there were fewer of them, and you didn't, you couldn't be bossed around as easily. You didn't, you could not work some days if you wanted to. You were able to demand higher wages if your boss or lord treated you in a way you didn't like. You could go over to the next place because they still needed work. You know, you were just more able to argue for and demand the terms that made your work make more sense, and that use of your time make more sense. I mean, we can safely say that there was no other time in the history, from the beginning of serfdom until now, that wages were so high and food was so cheap. There was abundance because labor had gained power. Yeah, I mean, it does make sense when you think about it,、mm-hmm. but it's it's a funny thing to sit with to be like, oh wait. The plague, which was a horrible thing、mm-hmm. to happen to people, had this effect of temporarily, at least, really kind of improving people's lives,、mm-hmm. like ordinary people, the peasants. Yes, you know, because they couldn't be exploited as readily because they were more necessary, necessary and precious.、Mm-hmm. And I、uh, think that she makes a good case for the way that the peasantry. Could really feel their power and understood what a big change was at hand. Definitely, yeah.、Um, there's this sentence that keeps that recurs in letters from that time of "Now is the time." Like now the, is the time that the proletariat understood that they had a growing amount of power and that things were going to change. And one thing that I love in this part is that Federici talks about how in Florence there was a recurring graffiti. <laughs> <laughs> of the Wheel of Fortune card from the tarot, which meant that there was change coming.、Mm-hmm. Fortune was going to turn their way, and change was on the way.、Mm-hmm. And I, I love the wheel. Yeah, Fortuna yeah. was going to shine on the poor. To imagine the、uh, the Wheel of Fortune showing up on the walls of taverns and workshops、mm-hmm. as a symbol of an imminent change of fortunes.、Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Right. Oh, and I wanted to add while we were talking about gains made to labor.、Um, at this point in the history of work, women peasants begin to be paid equally as men, and、yeah. because their work was also as valuable as men. And before that, the lords had gotten away with paying them less.、Mm-hmm. So the 
the power of the female workers was also mm-hmm. up there and at a height that it had not been at before and that it declined shortly thereafter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah. So... It's invigorating to read this part, and it's a good part to linger over, Mm -hmm. because history doesn't stop here. (laughs) No, it doesn't. And things would change, and there would be a pretty intense reaction on the part of the ruling elites. Um, But it is, it's nice to linger over this part, and how some of the higher-ups would complain, servants are now masters, and masters are servants, (laughs) and such forth, as is quoted here in the book. So remember this, because the demographic shift that happened after the plague is a major underpinning of everything that's going to happen from now mm-hmm. on. Right. Well, most. A lot of it. Yes. And it ties into the witch hunts and all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Okay, so before we finish up the chapter and discuss the counter-revolution, I want to give a content warning and say that this next part is hard and that we're going to be not talking graphically, but we will be referring to gendered violence and assault and the complicity of the state with that. So if you want to skip five minutes or so from now, um, you could do that. But I just wanted to give you a warning because this part is hard. And sometimes you need to pick and choose when you hear some some things. So by the end of the 15th century, so the end of the 1400s, the powers that be started to reorganize and try to figure out a way to get the upper hand with labor relations. And one of their tactics was to increase the hierarchy based on gender. And one of the ways that they did that was to basically decriminalize sexual assault on women. They call this giving young men, like apprentices and journeymen, like greater access um, like to women and considered it a way to sort of blow off steam. The way that this was framed within the culture at the time was that um, a lot of times big groups of young workers... Um, I think that they actually convinced themselves were class war would decide that certain maids maids or servants that were working in the houses of lords or shop owners were actually um, having sexual relationships with the lords and they would break into the houses, take the women out and gang rape them. And these working class women often couldn't even work in that profession anymore after this. Um, there were lots of court records of this happening. It was almost an epidemic. You And you were not even safe inside your house necessarily or inside mm-hmm. the house of the person you worked for. You might even be more of a target there. But this assault was rampant in the culture. Yeah, and the idea, it's kind of like mm-hmm. that the men would like get at these rich people by fucking with the women who worked for them. Right. You know, perversely. Right. Yeah. And upper class women, and this is important, upper class women it would still be illegal to rape them and to assault them if you were poor. It was only poor women that Mm -hmm. there was a decriminalization of assault with. Mm -hmm. So the illusion of class war is just like some really serious pathology of internalized shit there, you know? So 
Um, this was a really violent time. It was a terrifying time to be a poor woman. You were not only subject to the violence of the people you worked for, but also to people of your own class. And here is where we start to see the gender divisions becoming more and more codified. And we see the groundwork being laid for what will eventually become the witch hunts. Within this time period, too, like an interesting thing happened where the state started running brothels themselves. There was all this energy being put into giving young men a pl- of the lower classes a place for their sexual outlets. And mm-hmm. the brothels that were run by the state, probably often with workers who were formerly assault victims, honestly, because sometimes that's the only trade they could go into at that point. Um, then the brothels were run by the state as an outlet and energy, or or they saw it as an outlet for the working class, for men of the working class. And this part's just really interesting to me because the brothels were also, um, sanctioned by the clergy and they saw this as a, as a good thing to do and maybe even preserving the marriage and preserving family relations in the future. And part of what the understory of all this is, is during the labor crisis, there was a surge in homosexual activity between men. At least that part is recorded, and it was actually quite fashionable in some places like Padua and Florence. And the church saw that as a more of a threat and thought that if they and the state together, like, sanction these brothels, that that there would be less energy going into this non-procreative sex. Yeah, right. It's really hard to imagine. But so you're starting to see the seeds of what Dave was talking about earlier, which is a heightened interest in sex from the church and the state and a heightened interest in procreation. And just to jump back briefly, um, we talked a bit about how the heretical movements started to be scrutinized for um, their participation in what were considered reproductive crimes. Um, and that was that a lot of the heretical sects were known to use what were called sterility potions, which would have been either aminagogues or abortifacients, but they were known to be able to practice ways of basically contraception and also abortion. And sometimes the heretics were most were being more persecuted for not participating in the reproductive economy. Mm-hmm. And all of this is sort of tied together. The, the control of women through the decriminalization of assault, the state-run brothels to try and offset homosexual activity, and the punishment for practicing contraception and abortion were all sort of part of the same weird mechanism of identifying the labor crisis as something that should be worked at through population control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, this part is really thick and heavy, and there's a lot to untangle. And but even just the terrible thought that class antagonism could be turned into antagonism against proletarian women right. by the decriminalization of rape it's so horrible. is a terrible thing to think about. Mm-hmm. That that could exist as like a safety valve for the mm-hmm. powers that be to exploit a potential division mm-hmm. and the way that we see this logic in hindsight at least we see this logic working as a saving mechanism for the powers at the time mm-hmm. and we can see that same strategy being used for so many other kinds of created difference over time yeah. whether that's through the construction of race as an outlet for violence mm-hmm. or through the the 
false division of citizen versus non-citizen or migrant mm -hmm. that we see as a outlet for violence over and over. We see these false divisions created and enforced and we just need to really pay attention to that strategy and work against it. Mm -hmm. Another thing in here that seems really big is how the rise of the state is a big part of this. Right. We haven't talked yet about so much about the state as in, you know, a form of governance that has control over a territory or even really defined what that was. But in the Middle Ages, states had kind of waxing and waning amount of influence over a society, especially relative to the church. Mm -hmm. um, and in this period, the state comes in because it's the state who makes laws. Mm-hmm. Right. And so decriminalizing rape, setting up these brothels and then running them were all these activities of the state. And as Federici kind of suggests here, the activity of the state became more important to preventing the total reversal of the social order mm -hmm. in this time period. And it's kind of like you sort of get the idea that because the brothels were, were run by the state, right, because they were trying to co-opt, what's the phrase here? They were trying to co-opt the youngest and most rebellious male workers, mm. right? And so then these young males, you know, associate the state with something that's providing a service for them, Ugh. you know? And yeah. then so they become like more allied with the state because of that and are more likely to see the state as a positive force, even though the state has this like much larger project of ensuring those very people's perpetual exploitation and subservience mm -hmm. to the ruling class. Right. You know? Uh, so anyway, the state is like a specter in here that... It's on the rise. On the rise, yeah. yeah. And that's kind of like where this chapter leaves us off. Yeah. And I think that, so to not end on the counter-revolution, because honestly, we're going to have to spend some more time with them later. Mm -hmm. um, I just want to touch again on the inspiring examples of the heretics and i think it would be good for us to start to think about like what ways could we create networks heretical networks of people who are creating lives worth living and create different nodules of power and resistance and support mm -hmm. and what could that look like mm -hmm. and I think it's really important to read about these people who did it before us and yeah. to think about them. Yeah. And this time, more of maybe a heresy against capitalism. Right. Well, I think that's probably a good place to leave it. Yeah. Um, we will be back in about two weeks. We will be back for chapter two. It's a long one. It's a long chapter. If you are reading along, I think this one is uh, more than 50 pages and a lot unfolds. Yeah. In those 50 pages. If you are um, reading along in this book or if you've read the book already, if you have anything that you want uh, to contribute to the podcast in the sense of if you have thoughts about what we're talking about, what we're about to talk about, you can always write to the book on fire podcast at gmail.com and you can submit questions or discussion topics. We would love it if there was uh, participation from y'all. And we also have uh, a Facebook group that people can join and talk about things. It's the Book on Fire podcast. Look for it. Okay. Till next time. Until next time. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm.